Good morning. Happy Sabbath. Welcome to uh, our Bible study this morning. My name is Russell. I want to welcome everyone in, in person and uh, online. Let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the gift, the gifts that you've given us, you bless us with, uh, not only the daily gifts uh, that we recognize and don't recognize, but the gift of liberty, the gift of your Son, the gift of freedom of being able to assemble and meet and worship according to the dictates of our conscience. I ask that you bless our study this morning, bless those of us who are not with us, and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We're studying lesson number five in the quarterly, the Gospel in Galatians, and this lesson is entitled Old Testament Faith. When you hear a title like that, the wheels start turning. I know mine did. Uh, is faith in the Old Testament any different than faith in the New Testament? These are some rhetorical questions I want you to consider. Is gospel in the Old Testament any different than the gospel in the New Testament? From Sabbath lessons, the memory verse, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Galatians 3.13 Again, some rhetorical questions. What curse were we redeemed from as referenced in the memory text? I've hung from a tree before. Anybody, anybody else hung from a tree? Does that make me, does that make us cursed? Well, what exactly does Paul mean? And what is uh, he's referencing an Old Testament text? Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. So, from Sabbath lesson, uh, there's a um, an illustration from William Tidwell. A little boy made a small boat, all painted up and fixed up beautifully. One day, someone stole his boat, and he was distressed. In passing a pawn shop one day, he saw his boat. Happily, he ran into the pawnbroker and said, That is my boat. No, said the pawnbroker, it is mine, for I bought it. Yes, said the boy, but it is mine, for I made it. Well, said the pawnbroker, if you'll pay me $2, you can have it. It was a lot of mo- money for a boy who did not have a penny. Anyway, he resolved to have it. So he cut grass and did chores of all kinds and soon had his money. He ran down to the shop and said, I want my boat. He paid the money and received the boat. And he took the boat in his arms and hugged and kissed it. said, you dear little boat, I love you. You are mine. You are twice mine. I made you and now I've bought you. So it is with us. We are in a sense twice the Lord's. He created us, and we got into the devil's pawn shop. Then Jesus came and bought us at an awful cost, not silver and gold, but his precious blood. We are the Lord's by creation and by redemption. Now, when you hear something like this, when you hear a passage like this, what what can we conclude? What can we discern from this? Love for us is beyond our ability to even say. What can we conclude from the author that wrote this? What can we discern from the author? What's, what's one of the more common quest, rhetorical questions that gets asked in here? Which law, which law lens is he viewing things from? Which law lens are we viewing things from? Any thoughts? Which law lens he's viewing this from? I would say love. I would say love. A love law lens? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest he's viewing it through a legal one. They're imposed law lens. I don't know this for sure. I, I've never met the guy. Um, but I have a question is, how would the kid get his boat back if 
if he viewed it through a different lens. If he viewed it through a, a design law lens? Okay, that's a good question. That's one I didn't consider. The vote is not something that can make a choice. Oh, excellent. That was the first thing I thought. The boat has no free will. Okay. Well, let's say let's say it was a puppy. Puppy doesn't have free will. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> but but they don't. I mean, they they have a will. I have three of them. They they are willful creatures. No question about it. But and even. Even a two-year-old child is a willful creature, but the child does not have reason and discernment in order to make a choice to accept or, or deny uh, traveling on a certain path. Adam and Eve were free agents. They were free moral individuals. They had reason, they had judgment, and they had conscience. And they made a, they made a choice. Eve believed a lie and broke the circle of love and trust, and then... Adam uh, joined in with her. So, yeah, this, there's all sorts of issues where this, this, um, this sort of uh, an illustration breaks down. A wooden boat is not a free, free moral agent. Now, the child certainly valued the boat and worked hard, and, and certainly and there are a lot of parallels as well. Jesus Christ uh, valued humanity. And worked very hard to um, to woo us back to trust and, and a relationship by not only revealing uh, the character of his father and revealing his own character and in the process revealing Satan's character, but he also uh, developed <coughs> excuse me a remedy within the species human to um, and eradicated. The disease, the cancer of sin and selfishness, now offers that remedy as a gift to us. Yes, sir. This is a this is similar to a parable, which is the way Jesus chose to teach in his era. And the stories have things that they can teach us. Which, which parable? Any one of them. I mean, he told stories because the story taught a lesson. But it wasn't necessarily a hundred percent directly effective in everything. But it taught things. You know, there are lessons that can be drawn from this. Okay, that's a fair point. Uh, compare the boat to a human, but by the same token, there's things that we can learn about being created and redeemed that are useful lessons. And Jesus would teach those lessons. You fair. couldn't take the coin. And say that it, the lost coin, and say it was anything like a human being. But there are character issues that are brought out by the story that teach us about God Himself. And this, I think, is what these kind of stories are useful for. Fair points. Um, I will suggest, however, that most uh, most of the parables that Christ told uh, referenced. Agriculture, design law, the laws of nature, the laws of science that um, that people could understand because they were living them. They, they, you know, men threw seeds in the ground all the time, and they watched the seed turn into a plant. Okay, this is this is design law. This is how nature was created to operate, and and he he drew uh, lots of life lessons from the parables uh, with design law. But your has almost direct relationship to the story of the prodigal son. 
The only difference is the prodigal son did have free choice. The prodigal son chose to leave. The story breaks down. But the idea of creating something and then purchasing it is is an idea that's it's worth pondering. You know, it's it's worthy of uh, review and, and analysis. Fair enough. Things it teaches us about the character of God. Any other thoughts? Yes. Um, back to that story or parable. Um, as a, a teacher of children, I've heard that story before, and I can relate to it. But it also bothers me because, I mean, first of all, the child kisses the boat. First of all, I'm like, that's kind of strange. It's a little creepy. <laughs> But it, because he is the creator and he made it and he loves it, but um, but what if what if that child said, "Okay, this is my boat. It's made to sail." Puts it back on the water and says, "You know, um, this boat is free to go." Then it kind of you know it takes on a, the whole story takes on a different kind of a meaning. That's what I thought of before when I read the story. Okay. Thank you. That's a facet I had not considered. Back to our memory text. What curse were we redeemed from? Death. From the curse of death. The malignity of sin. Curse of death. From death itself. From the malignity of sin. Separation from death. Redeemed from the curse of the separation from God. What, what, okay, what was it that separated us from God? The belief in a lie separated us. Okay, the belief in a lie broke the circle of love and trust. Did God separate from man or did man separate from God? Or was it a little bit of both? No, no. Sure? Yes, I'm sure. God never leaves us or forsakes us. Okay, hang on, this is a bit of a trick question. <laughs> Do we think that God God veiled any of His glory when He approached Adam and Eve after uh, after they sinned, and why? If He did, I mean, Scripture's not Scripture's not clear on this. He did come. He came and approached them in the garden, walking in the cool of the day. They had they had lost their robe of light. He's in. Can't say him anymore that he had to be like. My suspicion is that he he veiled it because if he had appeared in, in original glory, it would have destroyed them. That's that's my personal opinion. Take it or leave it. Now, there are there are passages in Ellen White which I don't have that said if if Christ had appeared in the glory that he was invested with in humanity, he would have destroyed the the humans that he came to save. Very rough paraphrase. So I, I think that if. If God withdrew some of his glory, now, he didn't do it because he was offended or because he was angry. He did it because of man, he did it because for the benefit of mankind. If he did it at all. So, I mean, you're free to chew on that one for a week. Yeah. I don't think that they were degenerated as we are. Oh, certainly not. Okay. So I think they probably still had a lot of their original glory and radiance and and maybe the the difference maybe wasn't as great even though they were separated now um i don't i don't know i've I've never thought about that as being need to have shielded his glory i don't know any other thoughts i don't think that he withdrew his glory i think it was much like moses he had to cover it 
because Moses didn't withdraw from the people. He just had to cover himself because he was in the presence of God. And I don't think that Adam and Eve could look up on that glory anymore after they, after they saw the other side. Okay. So back to my original question. What curse were we, dreamed from, were we redeemed from? We, we had death, um, curse of sin and selfishness. When, when mankind distrusted God, they believed the lie, broke the circle of love and trust, which led to acts of self-preservation. And then they reproduced. Adam knew his wife, and she bore him son named Cain, firstborn of all humanity, and humanity's first murderer. They passed that. They passed that distrust, that that uh, need to save self, or that desire to save self, onto their offspring. And here we are. How many thousands of generations later? So this is this is the curse. This is the curse. You know, you, we were all born under this curse, not by our choice. None of us chose to be born a sinner. None of us chose to be born in the first place. Well, that's the point at which I think we, we first see in the Bible that man began to think of God as arbitrary. <laughs> because in Cain's eyes, you know, he said this, but this isn't far off, so I'll just do this. And oh, it's, be fine with him. It started before that, I think. The fruit of what I'm doing and not what God told me to do. So we first begin to see that. Um, you know, God's arbitrary. He said this, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's kind of an arbitrary decision on his part. He didn't realize the underpinnings of why God asked him to do it that way. But ever since then, we've been looking at what the Bible says in our, our uh, history as, is God still arbitrary? Is he still kind of making up rules as he goes along or telling us to do things a certain way just for because he wants to? That there's, we still don't recognize the underpinnings of, let's say, the Sabbath even. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't recognize that there are reasons why he asks for certain things of us. Well, yeah, we don't recognize that, uh, certainly, if we, if we believe that God's law functions no differently than human laws. If we are, if we are, the wheels are starting to turn and we're starting to understand the design law, uh, the God's law's design law is the is the very fabric and, and protocols that life and the universe is designed to operate on. Then, then God's commands, His requests, His suggestions, however you want to phrase it, make a lot more sense. Sunday's lesson: the foolish Galatians. What exactly does Paul characterize as foolish with regard to the Galatians? See Galatians three one through six. Someone want to? Read that passage. You foolish Galatians, who has clouded your minds and confused your thinking such that you would prefer lies to the truth? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified and as the only remedy for our sin-infected minds. I would like to know just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit of love and truth? and experience his healing power by practicing rituals and observing rules, or was it by understanding and believing the truth 
that you heard. Are you really so foolish that you think that after experiencing the healing power of the Spirit, which came by trust alone, you can now complete the healing process by your own effort without the Spirit? Have you really gone so far in the treatment course for nothing? And it will be for nothing if you persist in trying to heal yourselves. Is it because you observe a set of rules that God enlightens your minds with his spirit and miraculously transforms your characters? Or is it because you have been one to trust by the evidence Jesus, re Jesus revealed? Is that the remedy yeah. version? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what's, what's being contrasted here? His way, our way. Yeah. Imposed law, obedience to an imposed law, a Jewish law on one hand, and the design healing law on the other hand, right? Okay, so, so Paul is understanding that within the Galatian audience, he has, there are, there are certain, there's a certain sect, there are certain individuals that are, that are Jewish, that are, that are wanting to, um, they're wanting to impose on the other Galatians this idea that here's a codified set of laws. Uh, we developed these in Jerusalem over many generations and centuries, and we've 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 come to a clear understanding. We have the we have the truth. We have the scriptures. We have the teachers with the rabbis, teachers of the law. We we get this. We know law better than anyone, and they're trying to. Trying to sell this idea of, of imposed law, circumcision, you must eat the right things, you have to worship on the right day, you have to believe in the right God, you have to do this and that and the other. Um, and Paul's trying to correct them to a healing model, a design law model. Yes, sir. When I was growing up, I was a preacher's kid. And uh, dad was old school. SDA, black and white. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You ever met one? Still is. I love him to death. And, you know, I have a sister eight years older than me. She was non-compliant. I'm the more compliant child. I tried to do, you know, my brother was somewhere in between. But I had seen the performance side. And they, if you don't do this, you're not going to get this. If you don't do that, you're not going to get that. And then all of a sudden, I saw the crushing reality that came smashing into their lives. Right. You know, life doesn't often uh, function to a, a codified set of rules. It functions according to design and the competing uh, antagonistic principle. And we need to be wise enough to discern the two because you can see... You can watch nature and you can observe survival of the fittest mentality. And if you divest yourself from scripture, you can go down the pathway of, of Charles Darwin and evolution. But life also functions with a uh, circular giving um, design. The water cycle, the rock cycle, the carbon cycle. If you're a father, do you love any one of your children more than the other because of the way they behave? No. I mean, you might prefer the actions of one child over the other, but I don't think it really affects the love. For the prodigal son's father, yearn more for the um, son who left or the son who stayed home. Yeah, yeah, that's a great. Okay, now yearning is different than than the term you use as far as love. 
Okay, you can, Tim has touched on this before, you can love, you can love your children, each children with all of your heart. Well, if you love one children with all your heart, what, what heart's left to love the other one? If you pack up your kids to go on vacation, are you going to take the wayward child with you? Mm-hmm. Or are you going to make them stay home? So I have a question about your story, because I don't feel like you really came to the conclusion about your story, that he actually was able to adapt in love. Is, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm saying that his uh, model, which was pretty performance-based, was overwhelmed by the care for his child. The love, the love overcame that. I mean, obviously my sister was paying for choices she made of course. that had circumstances that right. imposed themselves into my parents' lives. They could have easily rejected her and said, you can stay where you are, you made your own life, and you can live in that. But their love overcame their... I was their actually idea. pretty shocked. I'm an eight years old, younger yeah. child watching this. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking like, if that was me, I would be somewhere between death and near death. <laughs> you know, that was my choices. And they took her back, and it was amazing, really. A couple of things came to mind. I have one child that thought that I loved the other child more. And, and I didn't, but I had two very, very different children. And what I, as an adult, what I told the, the one who complained is I said, I didn't love her more. I didn't. I understood her better. <laughs> I didn't understand why you did what you did and and how to do how to deal with what you said and did. I, I just didn't understand you. You wanted to control everything from a very small age. The entire family, you know. As the person who has to, you know, be responsible for a family has to be looking at the entire family, not just themselves, you know. And so, what a child can interpret as as lack of love can be, like in my case, uh, a difficulty understanding. You can't relate to that child very well, but you still love them. And I, and I, back to the point about the prodigal son. Finally, I mean, probably in the last year, I realized the father went out to both sons. He didn't go out to just the prodigal son. He went out and got the other son too, who was jealous. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that kids had the opportunity to understand how love really works. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it seems like in some of these analogies, love is some sort of a pitcher of water that we dole out equally to different members of our family or our different acquaintances. And I don't think that kids are able to understand it. It's not really a pitcher of water. It's more like a faucet, right? So the more love that you have, the more people you have in your environment, the more more folks that you have to love, the greater capacity you have for love. Mm-hmm, and so I, I don't know that uh, it isn't just the op- And I think it's one of the wonderful things about love. I mean, it's the only emotion that seems to grow at the rate of the Internet, depending on how many people uh, you have in your have in your life. Okay, thank you. Well said. Um, Tim and I have had, Tim, when we were in Africa, we had uh, long discussions about um, the nature of love and whether or not... Um, it, Talking about its state before the fall and after the fall. Um, and he and I differ on, on some key tenets of it. My, my personal opinion is that even before, at creation, before the fall, love was still going to have to be learned. It was going to have to be a learned, um, human beings were still going to have to learn to love. Now, they would have far less barriers 
to learning. We would not, we wouldn't be dealing with a sinful nature if they stayed away from the one tree in the one garden on the entire planet. They wouldn't have had a tempter. So the the barriers to that that selflessness and that eternal giving were minimal, if it you know if at all. And since the fall, the barriers that have that have come about, uh, you know, not only with uh, you know seeding Adam seeding the, uh, the creation to to Satan's reign, and and then you know that being hardwired into our DNA, we have a much more difficult time loving. However, it's still any any love that any true selfless love that's that's um, displayed by humanity originates with God Himself. It's that endless faucet. Okay, anytime you do what's best for someone else, it's a you're a conduit of the the love of God. Okay, it doesn't originate here. It doesn't originate with humanity. It has, it has to be. It has to originate in heaven. The only source of love and life in the universe. To finish my analogy about if you're going to pack up the family and leave on vacation, are you going to take the bad child along with the good child I think every father and mother I know will take the entire family as long as possible at some point in that child's life they're going to reach the, the age where they are making their own choices their own decisions and they can decide not to get in the car and go sure and that's a very nice analogy to humanity and what will happen in the future, it's not the father throwing you out of the car. Correct. You're leaving on vacation to go see grandma. Everybody's invited, but if you reach a point in your life where you choose you don't want to go, he's not going to force you to get in the car anymore. Exactly. The bottom of uh, Sunday's lesson in the green or pink section um, this is kind of a poignant question. If let's see, how often, if ever, do you find yourself thinking, "I'm doing pretty well. I'm a pretty solid Christian. I don't do this. I don't do that." And then, even subtly, thinking you're somehow good to you're somehow good to be saved. What's wrong with that picture? Neither does a sack of cement. <laughs> sack of cement doesn't think. Uh, yep, sack of cement thinks it's doing pretty well. All right. But I mean, really, let, let's let's. Let's get down to the nuts and bolts. Of what's wrong? What's wrong with this thought process? Where's the focus? Thank you. Focus is on self. What do I? How do I? How can I be saved? What do I have to do to be saved? Rachel. So this week, listening on the radio to a sermon about pride, I got an insight. The opposite of pride is not exactly humility; it's gratitude. So if somebody says. You know, you're doing pretty well, whatever that is. That's because it's the gift of God. We are each one weak. And when anything that we do that's commendable is an opportunity to give thanks to God. Because he made that possible. Okay, again, yeah, right, exactly. Like I was saying earlier, it, that's, that's his, it's a manifestation of his love throwing, flowing through us. Okay, yeah, I, well said. Money's lesson, grounded on Scripture. Whenever I hear things like, something must be grounded on Scripture, it raises some red flags for me. Now, 10 years ago, it didn't. 10 years ago, I thought, yeah, on the rock, 
found it on the rock, the rock of, of the Holy Bible. Let's stand beside it because we can't stand on it. That would disrespect the book. You can't put any other books on top of the Bible because it's that special book. Um, but yeah, grounded on Scripture. Is there anything wrong with anything, any issues that develop with something being grounded on Scripture? Misinterpretation. Okay. What what have we been focusing on here in the last three or four years uh, as far as uh, discerning truth? Perception of whether it's enacted or natural, and where does the law come from? Okay, so design versus imposed law. That's one of the things we've been focusing on. The glasses by which you look at something. Okay. What are the three threads of evidence that we have kind of fleshed out as being some of the better ways to discern truth with a capital T? Experience, science. Experience is one. Science. Science, nature is the other. And scripture. Scripture is one of the pillars. It's not the only pillar. Okay, we, we've seen quite clearly that when you... When you're in a scripture-only camp, you end up uh, with 34,000 different sects of Christianity all using that same book, that one little black book, to defend your denomination and beat others over the head with it. This is not healthy. Everyone's saying, no, no, my interpretation, our interpretation is the best. Focuses again on self. No, our interpretation, our day of worship, our diet, our view of why Christ had to die, that's, that's it and that's all. So then we, and in order to objectify it, we put down fundamental belief systems, 27 or 28 of them. Okay, if you end up in the nature-only camp, science-only camp, where does that, where does that lead down? What pathway does that lead down? Well, you see survival of the, fit, of the fittest all through nature. Yeah. We're liable to think that's the way we should be living. That's exactly right. It leads down the pathway of evolutionism, uh, atheism, survival of the fittest. And then the experience-only camp, where does that end up? And it feels good, doing. Yes, exactly. Mysticism, spiritualism. Elevating feelings and emotion and dethroning wisdom and judgment, reason and judgment. Okay? All three of these uh, need to anchor. Uh, we need to be anchored in all three of these things, and they need to harmonize in order to really give us a good discernment on what truth with a capital T represents. And f- don't get me wrong here. Paul's, Paul's uh, presentation of the gospel was certainly grounded in Scripture, and Old Testament scripture of that. That was the only scriptures they had. Time. And he had a deep personal relationship with his Savior. <laughs> the Savior appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And then he spent three years in the, in the wilderness uh, communing with his Savior. So, scripture, experience, and uh, I promise you he was well-versed in the laws of nature also. So his his presentation of gospel and gospel truth were founded in the three different um, three different anchors. Uh, you had a comment or question? Well, you know, one of my observations about any organization, whether it's religious, political, or 
administration, whatever it is, is that as human beings, our nature is exclusive. And in our denomination, we've had a bad habit of trying to narrow it down, maybe as low as 144,000 or something, some magic number like that. But when you look at Jesus' model, he was never exclusive. He was always 100% inclusive. And he took people. I mean, look at Hebrews 11. Does that look like a, a chapter of hero models? Or does it look like a bunch of rejects? It depends, you know? it depends on your perspective. Exactly. And, I mean, you know, he hung out with prostitutes. I mean, just imagine any church board with Mary Magdalene. You know, how mm-hmm. long is she going to last? And yet Jesus continually, continually included and brought those people in. And it's a model for us because humanity tries to, we want to form our little clubs, even as kids, you know. My brother and I pitched a tent in the yard and no girls were allowed, you know. And that's the way we are. We're just exclusive. We want to make it special. And in our religion, I think we do a lot of that. Yeah, and you know, continuing pulling that thread, uh, not only do we do that, but then we we adopt a coercive mindset in order to keep people in our group or to bring others in. You don't see Christ compelling or forcing anyone to sit and listen to him. When I finally realized that there are only two groups of people ever in the Bible. Yes. Two groups. Everybody in every religion around the world or no religion at all is only in one of two groups. You Correct. The saved, the unsaved, the righteous, the unrighteous, the sheep, the goats. Left hand, right hand, yeah. Two groups. There aren't any more than that. Correct. No matter what religion you're in or no religion at all, you are only in one of those two groups. And there's been a lot of corrupt ideas about how those groups are formed. Okay, Tuesday's lesson. Reckoned as righteous. This is often a fascinating phrase. Um, How many times have you heard it before? He was reckoned as righteous. What law lens are you looking through? Some authors use uh, the synonyms, uh, accounted, credited, uh, counted as righteous, imputed, uh, instead of the word reckoned. What do these terms mean? Some would say it's a legal metaphor. He was reckoned as righteous because God said he was righteous. If you got the wrong diagnosis, what can the wrong from You'll come to the wrong conclusion as far as how you make it right. That's right. Wrong diagnosis leads to wrong treatment. And so consequently, if you think it's a legal if somehow something happened in a book or an accounting or a record in which something needed to be marked off against, then you'll find out a way of marking it off against whatever you found to be wrong. But if it's a disease that needs to be cured, that's a different diagnosis. Absolutely. But to, to even use the word, even use the term, um, you know, even correctly understood, you use the term reckoned or accounted. If I'm looking at a balance sheet, I don't account myself as having $1,000 when I don't actually have the $1,000. I can't go to my bank and say, you know, I, I reckon I've got a grand in my account. Uh, I, I want to take it out in cash. And the bank tells me, well, you've got 30 bucks in your account. 
You can reckon all you want. <laughs> we'll give we'll give you thirty dollars. You know, you're not getting the other nine hundred and seventy. So to actually to actually account it, to actually reckon it, it has to be there. I mean, it, it, it's accounting one hundred and one. I never took accounting, but I know how to balance a checkbook, even though I don't. <laughs> it's lunacy, you know, continuing along the pathway that Wendell started. We say that Abraham believed God and was diagnosed as righteous. Why not? And why was he diagnosed as righteous? To me, I mean, to me scholars would have us believe that, that um, God's voicing that Abraham was righteous is, is what actually made him righteous. That's backwards. Abraham trusted God. He opened up his his heart to the uh, the healing of the Holy Spirit, and his character was transformed into into Christ, like Christ. God declared him righteous. Why? Because he was. Thank you. He didn't become righteous because God said it. God said it because that's what was that, because it was right because it was true. Anything else. I mean, God, God just declares, diagnoses him as healed. Anything else makes God a liar. And what made him healed is that he trusted God. Yes. He, he trusted God and opened up his heart, and, and God did the rest of the work. The lesson said that God claims that your faith makes you righteous. Your trust in him makes you righteous. Okay. Thank you for substituting trust for um, for faith, or using those terms synonymously, because I think they are synonymous. But there are lots there are lots of biblical scholars that think that faith is completely different than trust. Yes, sir. In the Muslim world, uh, if you, as a Christian, want to uh, somehow endear yourself or or sort of make yourself non abrasive to them and you refer to yourself as a friend of Abraham and one of my former pastors made that very clear he, when he was uh, pastoring or, or working in Africa um, he would actually you know ingather um, from Muslims and and yet because of the culture shifts that we've experienced you know over time and, and that we're experiencing right now here in the United States, can anyone call a Muslim a friend of Abraham in our regard? I, you know what? My knowledge of Islam is slim and none. I, I, I frankly can't, can't or won't even comment on that. But there, there are, there are three, three of the world's main religions all use Abraham as their patriarch: Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. They all claim Abraham as a, as a, as their father. Well. Um, and they all claim to worship the same God. Let me just flesh this out just a little bit so I don't leave myself stuck in a hole here. <laughs> if you find yourself in a hole, stop digging. Apparently, because of the development, the evolution of Muslim, of the uh, Islam or whatever, uh, they have gotten to the point where they have a very coercive, imposed law structure. Okay. And, of course, we have the same thing. So does Christianity. In our, you know, in the perspective that we, in this class, are trying to challenge, you know, people to think beyond that. So, I, 
what it really does, I think, is it is it makes you to go back to what Rachel said earlier, grateful that we have this opportunity to overcome those obstacles. But it also should make us you know humble to realize that we haven't gotten here, you know, overnight or you know, easily. It has come what people think they believe and hold on to as truth has come over many centuries, you know, through their culture. So we're not just challenging some somebody's uh, you euphemistic or, or uh, you know, their, their ideas that are, are just random. Okay, yeah, that's right. And this, this, is, um, this is design law. What law are we talking about here? Specifically, which, which of the design laws are we talking about with reference to coercive Islam, coercive Christianity, coercive Judaism, coercive whatever? What design law is it? Law of freedom. Yes, more specifically, the law of worship. Okay, I'm talking about the law of worship. If you believe in a deity that is coercive, that restricts free will, that says my way or the highway, my way or I'll cook you for as long as you want, or my way or go kill the infidel, if you worship a deity like that, you will become like that. It's, it's how we were designed. Look at Ishmael, who, that whole line, all the 12 tribes of Ishmael. Isaac had 12, but so did Ishmael. And, and look at how he was actually, I used to think Ishmael was a little baby when, when, Mo, when Abraham sent him out. He was 14 years old. He wasn't a little baby. He was a 14-year-old, probably a big, sturdy guy, the first oldest son of Abraham who traditionally got all the blessings. And when Sarah complained, I don't want to raise my child with this boy, and, and God said, listen to your wife, send her out. So he sends Hagar, who's an Egyptian, out with a 14-year-old boy into the desert. Good luck to you, you know. And she puts him someplace and goes somewhere else because she can't bear to see him die. And God specifically comes to her and says, it calls her by name and says, you, you know, everything's going to be all right. I'll be with him too. I'll make a nation of him as well. And so Hagar gets an Egyptian wife for Ishmael. So you've got this sort of mixture of an Egyptian way of looking at things and Abraham's way of looking at things in this group that goes off and becomes the Arabs, who becomes all of Ishmael's 12 tribes that kind of beginning where you were the favored son and then you were just arbitrarily cast out from their perspective might be the very beginnings of the differences we see t today. Well, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm sure that uh, neither Ishmael nor Hagar were very happy about the process. You know, the, God's promise notwithstanding. I, I imagine that, uh, who knows, she may have loved Abraham with all her heart. I don't know. Even though, even though that she was, she may have been thrust into that role um, unwillingly. Who knows? Wasn't her her that initiated that decision? Correct. Yeah, it, she didn't. She wasn't given. I don't know how much of a choice she was given. But um, so yeah, lots of lots of uh, you know bizarre social and familial dynamics and and uh, nurture and nature. Uh, you know go along with that and, and this is this is why we see um um you know god god's prediction about ishmael he will be a, a wild ass of a man and he will be against um all of his brothers 
Interesting. And it's not, and, and that didn't happen because God said it would. God said it because that's what he knew that's what would happen. Interestingly, when Abraham died, it was both Isaac and Ishmael that buried him. So somehow or another, they kept in touch. In, in some way, they, they were still uh, familiar with each other, communicating mm-hmm. with each other. Michael. Um, to tie some of this together. I need, I need you to speak up a little bit. Just tie some of this together. Um, you know, we, we the, um, a lot of a lot of the Muslims are beginning are getting a real bad rap. I see because of a lot of them are radicalized, but there are a lot of good people there. Uh, Rachel and I were in Turkey a few years ago in Haram, and um, we uh, it, it, it's the city now is just really a small little town now, like a village almost, and um, and we met the mayor. Of Haram, and he was a very open and friendly and warm individual. He invited us to his house, and um, we, while we were there, we we visited for some time, just sitting in his living room. Everybody's on the floor, kind of around in a circle and talking. And and his father, the mayor's father, was also there, and um, and after a while, he started to cry. And uh, we were a little taken back, trying to figure out why he was crying. So when we inquired, he said that uh, he was just devastated that such fine people like we were were all going to hell. <laughs> okay. he, was, he was worried about our, our souls. I think he was a better Christian than a lot of us are today. Point of story. So being exclusive, I'm sure there's a lot of Muslims who will be in heaven as well. I certainly hope so. Um, all right, <clears throat> moving along. Uh, this is from the bottom of the lesson. The Bible is clear. Abraham's obedience was not grounds for his justification. It was instead the result. He didn't do the things he did in order to be justified. He did them because he already was. Justification leads to obedience, not vice versa. And I thank you very much. I think that's very well said. Wednesday's lesson, the gospel in the Old Testament. Back to the beginning, I asked some rhetorical questions. Is there, are there, is there any difference between the gospel and the Old and the New Testament? What constitutes the gospel in the Old Testament? And what constitutes the gospel in the New Testament? How are they, how are they similar and how are they different? Thoughts? It's all about promise, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. Okay, there are, there are there are some subtle differences. Okay, and before Christ appeared on this earth, all everyone was looking at the promise of a Savior, the promise of a Redeemer. Think how much easier we've got it now. We have the benefit of the New Testament, which basically you got the first four books, which tell the story of Christ's life on earth. And then others tell uh, the stories of the start of the Christian church, uh, the spread of the gospel. And then uh, Revelation talks is kind of an overview of the, uh, the great controversy from beginning to end. We have it much easier now with the New Testament and, and with the revelation uh, that Christ brought, not only the revelation of God's character, but of Christ's character and Satan's character as well. 
You know, we, we, I sometimes have fallen into the trap of thinking, well, if I was one of the children of Israel, I wouldn't have thought that. I, I, what are they, what, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Those clowns? I, I wouldn't have got anywhere near them. I can't say that. Probably would have. My mind would have been just as darkened as theirs. So there are some subtle differences between the, the gospel in the Old Testament is promising a redeemer. The gospel in the New Testament is referencing back to the redeemer that came. Now, similarities, there was no bigotry, no sexism, no racism, no elitism in the God of the Old Testament or the God of the New Testament. He was inclusive. He just chose a certain type of people to... to um, to reveal to the rest of the world his, his character and nature. And he can, you know, the, the script, the children of Israel, the acting true. The, you know, here's your, here's your, here are your lines. This is your role. Here's your costumes. Don't want to, don't want to, you want to ad lib? Next, we'll use your understudy. Both testaments were written and inspired by the same loving character of God. Uh, okay. That's, uh, that's another great similarity. Yes, both. And I believe that that same Holy Spirit, that same loving uh, Holy Spirit, oversaw those who were tasked with compiling the books to be canonized, to be included in the Old and the New Testament. And there are books that were not included in, in Scripture that have loads of truth in them. They just weren't deemed appropriate to be included in Scripture. Wendell? I think your comment about... Um the Old Testament pointing forward toward the Redeemer and the New Testament pointing back to the, the Redeemer are very telling. It's all about the Redeemer. It's about a person. It's not about a process. It's not about a, you know, a magic spell. A theory. It's about a person and whether you trust him and the attempts by God to get us to understand who he is and provide a healing remedy for the disease that has become infected in us. Uh, great point. Have you ever taken a step back and thought, what exactly does it do? What is, what is it? A, what is it? A, 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 what is it? A book about? Is, is, is it a book about mathematics? Is, is it an exhaustive primer on mathematics? No, plenty of math in there, but it's not a book about mathematics. Is a book about architecture? No, plenty of architecture in there, but it's not a a, a treatise on architecture. Is it a history book? Kind of. It's not a. It's not an exhaustive history book, but there's plenty of history in there. What it, What is? What is it? What does it do in its perfection? What does Scripture do? It tells. It tells God's intervention of trying to heal man, mankind from the, the state of sin. That's what it does in exhaustive detail. Tells the origin of sin. It gives us not only not only on Earth, but in uh, in the universe as well. We have the, we have the origin. We have the 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 process. We have the finality. We have the results. Uh, Greek has such amazing aspects to its language that we don't get in English. Uh, things like that we say, like the presence of the future, uh, you know, there's a future perfect tense, there's a past completed tense, 
there's much more focus on that, whereas we tend to do it more with insinuation and innuendos. But to answer your original question, which was, what's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I think one of the biggest perspectives, or is one of the biggest differences, is perspective. Because it's a little different, as you mentioned, to look forward. Looking forward versus looking backward. An event that hasn't been completed. Yeah. Then there is to looking back to a past completed action, the effects of which are present today. Yeah. And I stated this actually in the story about my father, because the whole time I was growing up, I thought he was one way. And I learned a lot about the way his love actually functions by seeing what happened after something else happened. Well said. But there's also some looking forward in the New Testament as well. We're looking forward to an earth made new, looking forward to being done with this mess. One, one last comment. We've got to wrap it up. We have to remember, too, that with rare exceptions, God is very little quoted in the Bible. Very, very few exceptions. We don't have the exact words of God. This was all pinned by other people. Right? Yeah. And it was two damaged people. With the exception of two chapters in the Bible, it was all written to people who were diseased. Mm-hmm. Written to people who were diseased and who were diseased. Yeah. The, 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 the scribes, or what do you want to call it? It's not scribes, but the inspired men were all diseased. And so, and translated by other diseased uh, human beings. And most of what happened, even in the New Testament, didn't happen in Greek or in English or in anything. Right. It was written in language for our benefit, right. but happened in a, a totally different language, which is seldom used. <laughs> right. Well said. All right. Let's wrap things up. Gracious Father, thank you for the mountain of evidence you've given us for your trustworthiness. Please strengthen us to um, discern that evidence, to discern truth from error. Um, We're told in Scripture that that happens through practice. So give us the energies and the motivation to practice. Uh, Please continue to bless our class, uh, bless our uh, corporately and individually. And most of all, we ask that you continue to mold and shape our characters to that like Christ so we can hasten his coming. In his name, amen.